Well, good morning, Hillcrest. Good to see everybody here today. Hadn't the worship been especially good this morning? It's great to worship the Lord uh, together today. We welcome everybody in the house here at Don Mile. Special good morning to those of you over at Spanish Trail Campus. Love y'all. Pray that things are going well with you and your worship gathering this morning. And then wherever you may be, perhaps tuning in in our online community, watching on your computer screen or on your telephone or on your big screen in your living room or on your vacation, whatever the case might be, we welcome everybody into the house of God. It's a good thing to worship the Lord. It's a good thing to do it together. We're better when we worship God together. Amen. And there's things that happen when God's people get together that can only happen when God's people are together. So thank you wherever you may be this morning for being here and being part of our worship experience. Take your Bible, either printed form like mine or electronic, whatever the case might be. There's one in the rack in front of you. If you don't have one, be finding the Gospel of Matthew, the 28th chapter. Once again this morning, we're beginning our new year together looking at some important priorities, particularly for us as a people. Particularly what it is we're looking at is God's master plan for the church, God's master plan for the church, his church, God's master plan for our church here at the corner of Nine Mile Road and Guidy Lane. And that purpose, of course, that master plan is summed up in the phrase, disciples making disciples. Would you say that out loud together with me? Ready? Together. Disciples making disciples. Say it again. Disciples making disciples. That, brothers and sisters, is our Lord's plan A. And can I just say it this morning? He didn't leave a plan B. And that's why it's so important that we be reminded of this in an ongoing kind of way. Here at Hillcrest, of course, we articulate the function of disciples making disciples, typically with the phrase becoming like Christ. And I guess this would be a good time, as we did last week, to once again remind ourselves of our mission statement as a church. We have a Discover class this afternoon at 4 o'clock here at the Nine Mile Campus, also one over the Spanish Trail Campus. Many of you who are new to Hillcrest or thinking about joining Hillcrest will join us in that Discover class. And one of the things we do is we go over our vision. In fact, today probably be a good day to come simply because we're repeating a lot of this in this month of January from the pulpit. So the beautiful thing about Discover class today is it probably be a little bit shorter class. Can I have an amen? And who doesn't like a shorter class? Uh, particularly when there's football on television that you want to go home and watch. And so today would be a good day to come either at either campus. But the reality is we have a mission at Hillcrest bound up into becoming like Christ. And let's review our mission statement together. I'm going to say it and then you can say it with me. Our mission at Hillcrest is to help people in becoming like Christ by worshiping God, connecting with others, serving the world. Let's say it out loud together with emphasis. Our mission at Hillcrest is to help people in becoming like Christ by worshiping God, connecting with others, and serving the world. And that's just a kind of a memorable way, we think, of saying that our purpose at Hillcrest is ultimately to make disciples. That's the purpose of the church. Whether it's a Baptist church, Methodist, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, it doesn't matter. If you're a New Testament church, we all have a common purpose. Jesus defines it for us, and that is to make disciples, to create a culture 
where not the pastor makes all the disciples, but where disciples make disciples. Now, if you were with us last week or maybe caught up uh, on the internet, if you weren't able to be here, that purpose, of course, for the church, the purpose of making disciples uh, was articulated by Jesus in what amounts to some of his final words. These are words that were directed at the disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not long before he would ascend back to heaven, go back to the Father, take his throne at the right hand of God. And across the years and across the decades, of course, these final words have become known to the church as the Great Commission. The Great Commission. In fact, say that out loud together with me. The Great Commission. That's right. And the reason that I want you to say it out loud is because I'm amazed at how many churchgoers don't know what that is. I'm amazed at how many churchgoers don't know what it is. I have no idea what it means. In fact, it's one of the most important things that Jesus ever said and one of the most overlooked and neglected. Just a few months ago, the George Barna organization released the results of a survey that they took among American church attenders, not people walking the streets. These are people that actually go to church somewhere. And they asked one question in the survey, and the question was simply this, have you heard of the Great Commission. And we're gonna put the results up on the board, check it out. This was just released a few months ago, so it's really fresh. 6% were not sure that they'd ever heard of the Great Commission. 17% responded yes, and here's what it means, and they got it right. 25% uh, answered yes, I've heard of it, but I can't really tell you what it means. And then a full 51% said, nope, never heard of it. Now, that's really remarkable that among church attenders, 76%, over three quarters of people who go to church in the United States either don't know or weren't sure about a passage that informs us what the primary point of Jesus leaving the church on planet Earth until his return is really all about. Now, can you better understand why we need to repeat this stuff over and over and over again? See, the irony is that Jesus' last words are supposed to be our first priority. And so, with that in mind, let's take a fresh look at the Great Commission today, looking um, again at it in its greater context. Instead of beginning in verse 18, let's go back a couple of verses and begin our reading in verse 16. Everybody ready to read? Say amen. Matthew 28, 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some what? Some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you, what? Always to the very end of the age. Now, I think it's important to remember that Jesus is not leaving his disciples' instructions here 
that would have been totally and completely unfamiliar to them. In fact, he's not really teaching them, I don't think, a new thing here. He'd spent three years, of course, with them in his public ministry. He'd been teaching them many of these truths, and certainly he'd been modeling this very thing to them all throughout that period. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but there were basically only three or four different kinds of groups that Jesus ministered to in his adult ministry. Of course, many of us are familiar with Jesus, first of all, ministering to crowds, but that really wasn't the lion's share of his ministry. That was not even a frequent part of his ministry. That was more of an occasional part where Jesus would minister to these massive throngs that would come around so that people would be packed in houses and flooding out into porticos and hanging out of the rafters. These were times when he would teach like the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount of Beatitudes, where Jesus fed the 5,000 or Jesus fed the 4,000, or times when they would gather on the hillside, Jesus would have to get in a boat and they'd have to push him out in order to give him room to speak and address the whole crowd. So he did occasionally minister to crowds. Then Jesus had a community that he ministered to. And that community, of course, was his 12 disciples, those guys that were with him, the lion's share of the time. And of the community, Jesus had a third group, and that's what we might call the core. There were three of those individuals. Who knows who they were? Peter, James, and John. James and John, of course, were brothers. And um, they were the three that Jesus probably spent the most intimate time with, had the most intimate contact with. And then, of course, there were close relationships. Uh, People like Jesus' family, his mother, Lazarus, Mary and Martha. You get the picture. So Jesus ministered to crowd. He ministered to his community. He ministered to his core. He ministered in close relationships. And the lion's share of his time, 80 to 90% of his time probably, would have been spent with those smaller groups of people in personal an instructive teaching where we might say Jesus was teaching, discipling, even coaching them in terms of who he was and what the kingdom was about and how they were to live. So when Jesus gives these instructions here in Matthew 28, what we call the Great Commission, marching orders for the church after the ascension of Christ and until he comes again, um, this is not something that they would have been unfamiliar with. He's basically telling them, do unto others as you've seen me do among and with you. This is in terms of what was supposed to happen next once Jesus was gone, this is plan A. Disciples making disciples, and can I say it again, Jesus did not leave a plan B. Now, interestingly, we're told here that some of the disciples doubted, right? I'd say that word out loud because there is a little doubt going on. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, we don't know who the some were. We don't know if it was just the 11 remaining original disciples of Jesus who were there or if there were other disciples, other unnamed disciples there. We're not exactly sure who doubted it, uh, doubted. Um, We're not told what it was that they doubted. I mean, did they doubt Jesus? I doubt that. Um, But we're not really told. You know what my hunch is? My hunch is they've been talking about this. This is not the first time that this subject had come up. Jesus, of course, had been indicating to them since before his death that he wasn't going to be with them for very long. And they needed to know. 
how to function and how to operate in his absence, something that they had never had to what? That's right, they'd never had to do it before. And so this may have been what was causing the doubt. They were doubting not so much his lordship, not so much his identity. I don't think any of that was at play. I think they were doubting their own abilities to do what he had been teaching them to do, what he says here with emphasis. Let me just ask a question this morning. Has anybody in the room ever doubted their own ability to serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Anybody in the room ever doubted their own ability to obey consistently the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever questioned whether or not you could effectively share your faith with somebody else? That you could effectively share what the Lord had done for you? Whether you could effectively teach his word to others? Where you could effectively work with kids or work with teenagers? Have you ever doubted whether you could ever possibly disciple another human being in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ? Probably, if you're like 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent of most Christians in the world, you've experienced some degree of doubt as it related to your own ability to follow the will and the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't think these original disciples were any different. The discipleship process the business of being a disciple, becoming a disciple, and discipling others isn't an easy thing. I mean, it takes time. It takes an investment. It takes energy, effort. It takes vulnerability. I learned a long time ago, haven't you, that life is messy. Somebody say amen. And so is ministry. We want nice, clean. Listen, ministry is messy. It's dirty work, it's hard work, not for cowards. Ministry is not for the faint of heart. And that's why Jesus peppers the Great Commission with reminders that he's just not telling us to do something and then throwing us into the deep end of the pool. He gives us some assurance here that what he's leading us to do, instructing us to do, is doable because it's not just us that's gonna be doing it. He peppers this great commission with some incredible promises that remind us that it's not only us who are doing the work of discipleship, it's him doing the work through us. Everybody's working. I love the passage in Philippians chapter three where Paul reminds us as disciples, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling But he doesn't just put a period there. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and accomplish his good purpose. Christ works in me, I work out. And this is the primary function of discipleship. It's not us who's doing the work of discipleship alone. Christ is doing it through us, and he reminds us of that. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Go and make disciples, and remember, I am with you, say it out loud, with you always, even to the very end. So following Jesus and helping others to follow Jesus can sometimes be threatening, we admit it, but we shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't shy away from it. We should embrace it, trust the Lord, and go forward in his strength, struggling with all his energy because Christ is always with us and ultimately the work is his 
to accomplish through his people. For us, the when comes in just obedience, doing what he instructs us to do. And remember, what Jesus commands us here to do is to make disciples. Now, your English translations, almost all of the modern English translations, and even the ancient ones for that matter, um, make it appear uh, otherwise, but there is one command in the Great Commission. There seems like there's more than one, but there really is only one command in the Great Commission. I mean, one technical command linguistically. There's only one imperative in the Great Commission. And the command, the heart of the Great Commission is found up in the phrase, what? Make disciples, that's right. Now, reading it in English, it seems like go is a command, but it's really not. In fact, the commandment of the passage is to make disciples. The words go, baptize, and teach, if I can give you a quick linguistic lesson here this morning, are principal parts of speech known as participles. Participles modify verbs. The principal verb is an imperative verb, make disciples. And so these other three concepts that form the lion's share of the framework of the Great Commission, go, baptize, and teach, modify the verb make disciples. They, they help us to understand the process of doing it. Think of the Great Commission as a stool. We've got some stools on the stage, but they won't work because they got four legs. I need a stool with three legs. But just imagine with me a three-legged stool. The main part of the stool where you rest is make disciples. The supporting three legs of the stool are go, baptize, and teach. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me say amen. The problem with disciples from time to time though, understanding that, that it's, that it's a command. The problem that we have and have had for a long time as churches is that sometimes we turn the great commission into the great suggestion. And we think it's for everybody but us. I'm sure there'll be some people leaving, leaving today as they do every week. I've had it said to me all through the years. Wasn't that a great message this morning? I'm glad so-and-so got to hear it today, right? As if I got this thing all figured out, man. No, 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 no. There, there's a lot of us that take the Great Commission as a great suggestion, and we fail to see it as something that Jesus commands to every believer, not just the pastor, not just those gifted with the gift of teaching spiritually, not just those gifted with the gift of prophecy, not those who just have a sense of holy boldness about them. No, many of us are like some of these first disciples and we sometimes doubt our ability to do it and we convince ourselves that it's just not okay. It's just not for me, it's just not my thing. But that's selective obedience, which is always disobedience and you forfeit the blessing of God anytime you make a decision to disobey the command of Christ. God is not into selective be obedience. Did you hear me say amen? I remember the first time um, I flew into Ben Gurion Airport, in and out of Ben Gurion in Tel Aviv. Anybody ever flew in and out of Israel? You go into Tel Aviv at Ben Gurion Airport. And I remember it wasn't such a big deal going in, but I remember when I was going out, 
Ken was with me on that deal. We got sidetracked, man, and I was scared about that. I went in there thinking I've heard all these stories about Israeli security and how thorough they are, and I was kind of on pins and needles trying to cover it up, be cool. You know, I'm the pastor on this trip. You know, be cool. Oh, everything's going to be all right, and we're standing in this preliminary security, not the main security line, but the preliminary security line waiting to go through. And I'm kind of, here they come. They come into the line and just start talking with people and asking questions. And of course, I'm looking down at the floor, doing kind of that number, talking to my daughter who's with me, turning my back, secretly praying, take her, Lord, don't take me. Let the, no, I didn't do that. I didn't do it. I didn't think it. Now, I wanted him to take Ken, but I really didn't want him to take my daughter, so I was hiding behind him half the time. Well, I'll be dog, they didn't pull us both out, took us to different areas, pulled me out the line. Now you know I'm really perspiring, and my old spice wasn't working. You all know what I'm saying? And so they, I mean, they cleaned out both of my bags, took everything out of it, and I looked over, and a lady was piling up my technology and she said, I'm going to have to take this to the back, and you just need to stay here. And I said, man, take whatever you want. Hey, here's my wallet. Take the money. I don't care. Take whatever you want to take. I'll stay right here. And I had a little keyboard in there, portable keyboard that went with my iPad that I bought for the trip, little Apple portable keyboard so I wouldn't have to take my computer with me. And evidently, they hadn't seen one of those before, pretty new technology. So they came back, and they gave me everything back, and they said, we're going to have to keep this keyboard. I said, keep it. I mean, if you want me to pay for it and give it to you, I'm happy, whatever you need. And it's interesting. They eventually sent it back to me. They told me they'd send it back. You had the same thing happen, didn't you? Same thing. And they said, well, and I thought, sure, I'll see it again. And sure enough, two weeks later, FedEx showed up and they sent it back to me once they determined it was all right. But my point is simply this. Why is it we have no problem doing exactly what certain officials tell us to do? You think there was any possibility that this country boy from Tennessee was going to say no to something that Israeli security was asking me to do? Not a chance. So why do we do that with Jesus? I mean, that's the point. Why do we feel like that we can selectively choose what we will and won't do. And let me just say again, disciples making disciples is plan A. And Jesus didn't leave us with a plan B. Now, with all that as a backdrop this morning, let me leave you very quickly with four fundamentals from the Great Commission. These are four things that are required, I believe, of disciples who would make disciples from the final words of our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, to make disciples, we must live missionally. In other words, all of God's people have to think like a missionary. You, you are a missionary. I mean, every Christian is a missionary. Every Christian is a minister. And it's time for us to start thinking that way. I mean, we train our foreign missionaries on international fields. Of course, they get special training on how to think and how to live. Let me, let me just tell you, the foreign fields are coming to America. And if you as a believer don't equip yourself to think missionally everywhere you go, think missionally in your neighborhood, think missionally because even if the people look exactly like you, they're fundamentally lost by and large. So we have to think missionally as a missionary. Now, again, 
the first word of the Great Commission, we said this last Sunday, the first word of the Great Commission is what? It's the word what? Go, that's right. But again, that seems like a commandment, but it's really not a commandment. It modifies make disciples. Probably a better way to translate what Jesus is saying here is, in your going, make disciples. As you go about your daily business, make disciples. Does that make sense? In your going, in your coming, as you move along, as you go, as you fly in traffic patterns. In other words, it's almost as if Jesus assumes that we are on the go as missionaries. He's not gonna command something necessarily here that he expects of us. We ought to be on the march. On the move, we used to sing an old hymn in the church, we're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful, we're not there yet, we're not to heaven yet, but we're on the go. And as we're on the go, we need to think intentionally about the world around us, growing believers around us. Think like a missionary in your coming and in your going. Sometimes we can read that word go and we think of it as a single sending. And this is part of the confusion. Oh, God's not talking to me there because he hadn't commanded me to go. Oh, yes, he has. Now, it might be across the street. Not necessarily to North Africa or to Germany or to Japan or to Korea. Maybe not necessarily there, although some get a specific call to a specific place, no question about it. But sometimes we read this and we think this is only for those who get a specific call to a specific place vocationally where they're called to serve their life. Sometimes that happens, but again, the Great Commission is much more general than that. This is a general instruction to every believer. In your going, wherever that may be, live missionally in your neighborhood, in your office, in your factory, in your place of business, at the ball field, in your school, wherever that may be. And sometimes it takes a foreign mission field to get us and think that way. That's part of the reason we take so many short-term mission trips. We like to get people on the mission trip because that may be the thing that jumpstarts their understanding, but you do have to be very careful with that. How many of you have ever noticed that who've been on a short-term mission trip and it's like the minute you step off of the airplane, wherever that may be around the world, the minute you step on that air, airplane, it's like you strip your clothing off and you got a Superman outfit on. And you become super Christian. You don't give a thought about sharing the gospel with somebody you've never met in your life. You don't give a thought about doing a hard thing that somebody asks you to do, something that may be outside of your comfort zone. Man, we go on the mission field, people turn into super Christian on the mission field, <clears throat> and it's like when they come back, the plane lands on American soil and we put the Clark Kent glasses back on. And we go back into a missional cocoon. And it ought not be so. That's the way we ought to think and act strategically, intentionally, missionally, because the greatest mission field is the community where God plants you wherever that may be. For most of us in the room today, it's Pensacola, Florida. This is our mission field, and in it, God has called us to be constantly on the go. And as we go in our going from day to day, we realize, secondly, 
that to make disciples, we must share intentionally. We must live missionally. We must share intentionally. And never forget that the Great Commission is in part a call to share our faith. I said last week that the purpose of the Great Commission was not to make converts, but to make disciples, and that is true. But can I say it again? Y'all still with me? Say amen. You can't make a disciple without making a convert. So we have to see people come to Christ. There is an evangelistic component in this thing that we call disciple making. And so make no mistake, I think churches get into a false dichotomy. Well, our church majors a little bit more on discipleship while that church majors a little bit more on evangelism. Don't go there. Don't go there. Because you can't divorce evangelism from discipleship nor discipleship from evangelism. They're not the same thing, but they're really two sides of the same coin and there shouldn't be any disconnect between the two. In fact, salvation is always the first step in personal discipleship. And that's why you see Jesus giving an emphasis on baptism here. As you go, make disciples of all nations and then what's the next word? Say it out loud. Baptizing them. And that's focusing on the whole process of becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. This initial decision to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord. You become a disciple the moment that you're saved. It's the first step in following Jesus. Baby's first steps. And the first step after becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is to do as he himself did, our Lord. And you submit to baptism in water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that's what it means to be a saved disciple follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. By baptism, you're demonstrating that all things have become new in your life, including your name. That's why there's an emphasis on the name of our triune God here that's connected to baptism and why we baptize in the name of the triune God. I shouldn't have to tell you that names were a big deal back then. I mean, your whole identity, not so much today, although I do think that there are a lot of young parents, particularly today, that take the naming of their children very seriously, and that's a great thing. But back then, I mean, one's whole identity tended to be wrapped up in their name, and that's why typically in the Bible, how many of you started a Bible reading plan and you just went headlong into a genealogy? First thing, right? And you've got to work your way. Don't skip those genealogies. Even if you read them quickly, read them because there's usually a pause in the genealogy and you'll find a beautiful golden nugget of truth right in the middle of what you think is a very boring passage of Scripture. So at least read it quickly and pause uh, at those interludes because there's some rich stuff in there. But if you read those genealogies, you find so-and-so son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. It's all over the Bible. David, son of Jesse. Solomon, son of David. Joshua, son of Nun. Hezekiah, son of Ahaz. Just this past Wednesday night, by the way, you all know we still have church on Wednesday night. I hope you'll come. I teach the Bible at 6.30 over in the Northwest Hall. We're in our third leg of a four-part study of the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. And just last Wednesday night, we were in Genesis 32. 
the great passage where Jacob wrestled with the Lord. You're talking about a heavy passage, man, trying to work your way. What does that mean? Jacob wrestling, literally, physically wrestling with God. And those of you that remember that story, those of you that were with me in that study on Wednesday night, what was the last thing our Lord Jesus did with Jacob before he left him after he'd spent all night wrestling with him? What did, what did Jesus give to Jacob? He gave him a new what? Gave him a new name. I ain't gonna call you Jacob anymore because that word means deceiver. Deceiver. We're gonna call you Israel from now on. You're talking about a name that's changed the world. And Jacob is a different man, the last part of the Genesis narrative that deals with his life, much more so than the first part. So names are important. And when you trust Christ to save you, you commit to become a follower of Jesus, you become a disciple of Jesus, God gives you a new name. Isn't that great? His name. And that identifies you publicly as one of his children. You get a new identity, a new name, and a brand new family. For that to happen, all of us have to realize we have to share intentionally. Somebody shared the gospel with us or you wouldn't be here. I should share the gospel with others because it's part of being a great commission disciple who makes disciples as part of Christ's plan A. A third thing we see bound up in the great commission is that to make disciples, we must act obediently. We have to, to uh, live missionally. We have to share intentionally. We have to act obediently. You know what I think the most overlooked word of the Great Commission is? Observe. Observe. Jesus says, as you go, make disciples. As they come to Christ, baptize them as a public testimony of their faith, symbolizing to everyone who would witness it their new name and their new family. And then after that, the real work begins. We're to instruct them in the teachings of Christ. And this is kind of the process that we typically refer to as discipleship, disciple making. It begins evangelistically, but then you don't just chuck them aside and think, okay, tick one more off on the tally sheet, no. That's when the real work begins, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded. So we don't just teach people in order for their head to swell bigger with information and megabytes of facts and figures about Jesus. We teach them so that they can live observantly, obeying the commands of Jesus, not just knowing the commands of Christ, but observing the commands of Christ obediently. That's what we mean when we talk about discipleship. And it's why disciples making disciples is so important. Do y'all remember from last Sunday the definition that we've been using as far as that of a disciple? What is a disciple? Let me repeat it again just for emphasis today. What is a disciple? A disciple is a believer in Christ. There's your salvation element who follows Christ, learns his ways, and leads others to live biblically. Can we just say that out loud together? Ready? Together. A disciple is a believer in Christ who follows him, learns his ways, 
and leads others to live biblically. Now, for our purposes here, there are lots of ways to do discipleship. There's lots of ways to grow. We don't do it unidimensionally or one-dimensionally at Hillcrest. In fact, there are several ways that we do it. First of all, uh, we worship, encourage people, worship with your church family. What we're doing today is part and parcel of what it means to be a disciple because the Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves, what? Together. Don't, don't neglect meeting together. Don't forsake coming together because there's value, there's growth benefit in coming together at Hillcrest. So we need to worship together with our church family. But then secondly, we also encourage people connect in a small group because it'd be easy to get lost in a big group. And your growth is always gonna be marginal in the big group because there's no accountability in the big group. You can kind of slip in, slip out if you want to. And, and nobody kind of holds your feet to the fire. Nobody's really encouraging you to, uh, to build on your faith and to move to the next level in terms of your faith. And so we encourage people, you need to connect in a small group because growth happens best when it happens together face to face. There's support, there's encouragement, there's a degree of accountability that's ratched up another notch in a small group. There's intimacy in a small group, what we call here at Hillcrest Connect Groups, that you really don't get in a big group gathering like this one, important as what we're doing here today surely is. And then three, we encourage people to feed themselves. Learn how to grow yourself as a disciple. Paul writes to Timothy, train yourself to be godly. So there is a part of growth that takes place on my own. And as you grow as a believer, kind of the group thing, as you become accountable and as you learn and as you grow and as you walk with others, you tend to become more capable of growing as a believer and you need to make sure that you're feeding yourself as a disciple. That's why we pass out Bible reading plans. By the way, it's not too late to join up with a Bible reading plan. We've got one that we use at Hillcrest, but they're out there by the score. And you can go to one of our information centers or to the Next Step Center over by the coffee shop and pick up a little bookmark. We've got the January, February part of the reading plan published on a little bookmark. You can use that one. We're using a little different one this year that I'm personally enjoying because of the variety. But there are others, whatever. Do whatever you have to do in order to make sure that you're in the Word training yourself, praying, communing with Christ in prayer, meditating, fasting, you know, all through the spiritual disciplines, personally growing yourself as a disciple. And then a fourth leg of discipleship is investing in others. You come to a worship service, connect in a small group, feed yourself spiritually, but then you learn to invest in others. Help someone else learn how to live biblically. I don't know enough. Just take what you know for crying out loud. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be a graduate of some great seminary. You don't. These guys there, man, they just, they just walked with Jesus. They just transferred their walk with Jesus into the life of other people. So learning to invest in others, helping someone else, that's part of that definition, helping others to live biblically is a critical part of disciple making because again, Jesus' plan A is for disciples to make disciples. 
We're going to help you if you're here next week. The message next week is going to be very practical to help you understand how to do this fourth leg better for those of us that are just not sure about it or have never really done it before. We're going to invest an entire message helping you to know better how to do this because learning to live obediently and helping others to live biblically is at the very heart of God's plan for your life. And then finally, to make disciples, we must trust completely. Trust not your own ability, but trust in the power of the Spirit of God, which is alive and at work in you to make it come to pass. Jesus knew that personal discipleship, and Jesus knew that discipling others would not be easy. You don't have what it takes. Neither do I. But God is always at work in us. Amen? He's always at work in us. And God can do it. You can do it with God working in and through you. All authority has been given to me, Jesus says. Therefore, as you go, make disciples of all nations, see them baptized, teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you because I am what? With you always, even to the end of the age. Church family, my hope and my prayer is that disciples making disciples wouldn't simply be a ministry in our church, but instead, can I say it, I pray that it would be and become and always shall be the ministry of our church. My prayer is that our Lord's last words would always be our first priority. This is God's word. Let all who agree say amen.